Our sermon text this morning is Acts 9, 19-31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of, all, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how, Damas and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, we believe that you died for our sins, but that you did not stay dead, but rose from the grave, which means as we pray to you now, you hear us because you are alive. And you are our hope, you are our joy. So as we read your word, may it speak to us as we need to hear it. May it fill our hearts. Spirit, may you convict us where we need to be convicted. May you encourage us where we are downcast. We give this time to you. May we be still before you, Jesus. We pray this in your holy and majestic and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I proposed to Mariko, I believe it was June, uh, maybe in May, but I think it was June, 2012. And um, I had a whole plan for my proposal and things did not quite go as I had planned them to go. My plan, Marco was in D.C. for a month uh, in medical school. She, that was a, one summer she had off. And so she was in D.C. for a month, and that first weekend we were going to go to a, uh, a lake that was south of D.C. in Virginia. Hiking trails, the state park, beautiful area. Um, we were going to go hiking there for a day, and I had the whole day planned out, and I'd propose and be in this beautiful lake, and uh, you know, with lots of solitude, and we could have a special moment. Unfortunately, that day, there was severe thunderstorms across the D.C. area. And when I say severe, I mean tornado warnings, state of emergency warnings, like stay in your house, go to the basement, take shelter. So I'm thinking, well, probably not the best day to go on a hike. And what I should have done at that moment is just postponed it, because Marco was, like, going to be there for another month. But the, the problem was is I had this engagement ring, 
and it was literally burning a hole in my pocket. So I called a plan B. I was like, okay, well, we need to find somewhere that's sheltered. And so I decided, oh, I'll propose at the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, which I have a picture of that behind me on the screen. And as you can tell, it's a covered memorial, right? So I'm thinking, oh, uh, there are tornado warnings. It's like literally the declared state of an emergency. Like everyone's gonna be home. So we can go there where it's covered. It'll be empty. It's on the beautiful river. So it's like a beautiful view. Oh, this would be so great. So we decided to go there. And as we're walking there, I realized that every other tourist in DC had the exact same thought. And the building is just packed. Like hundreds of people are crammed into that little dome area. So on the outside of the dome, there's kind of a colonnade that's a little bit separated, and that's also covered, but it's you know, separated by a wall from the internal area. So we're walking along the colonnade, and I'm like, you know, trying to find a couple seconds where there aren't people right next to us where I can just propose. And then like, in the middle of this, uh, like a school bus load of Korean children, like from Korea, speaking Korean, just unload and they're everywhere and they're literally like, like peeking behind columns and like not a romantic situation. I find two seconds where there isn't someone right next to us. I pop down on my knee, ask her to marry me. Again, I had this whole written speech, didn't use any of it. Fortunately, Marco said yes. Fortunately, she was not the type of girl who particularly cared about a very intricate and elaborate proposal. But again, my plans did not exactly go as I thought they would. And that's I would say it's probably common with most of us how often our plans don't go as we think they will. I mean, think of this past month. What were the plans that you had that did not quite go as you expected them to? And sometimes it's funny. We can laugh at it. Sometimes it takes a couple years for us to be able to laugh at it. Sometimes we never laugh at it. But here's the thing. Best case scenario, our plans for the future are just educated guesses about what we think and hope will happen. But that is not the case with our Lord. What our Lord plans to happen, happens. Always. What he plans to happen, happens. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Uh, We're we're drawing to a close a section on the persecution of the church. And one of the overriding themes that especially comes out in our text this morning is that what Jesus Christ plans to happen, happens. So when persecution comes on the church, and this does not look like this could possibly be good for the church, we've realized, oh, this is Jesus' means to get his church to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And when there's a great enemy of the church named Saul, who's the most effective opponent the church has ever seen, again, Jesus is in control, and he has a plan for Saul, a plan for what he wants Saul to do. And again, what Jesus plans to happen, happens because he is the sovereign Lord. So our outline for us this morning is, first point, Jesus' plan for Saul in Damascus. Second point, Jesus' plan for Saul in Jerusalem. And then third point, Jesus' plan for the church at peace. So again, first point, Jesus' plan for Saul in Damascus. Let me read for us verses 19 to 25 again. So for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, and lowering him, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Paul, or Saul, goes by both names, has just become a Christian, and we get a glimpse right away of what his ministry is gonna be like. And the first thing we see is that Saul, from the very beginning, is 100% committed to Jesus Christ. He becomes a Christian, and immediately, he begins to proclaim Christ in the, temp- or sorry, in the synagogues. Saul, he seemed to be that kind of all-or-nothing type personality, right? So um, when he does not believe in Christianity, it was not enough for him just to not believe. But he had to be attacking it with everything he had. He's all or he's nothing. And then when he becomes a Christian, once again, it's not enough for him to simply confess Christ. He must now begin to proclaim this Jesus as Messiah in the very synagogue that he was going to to arrest Christians in the first place. I mean, this is the Saul who's gonna one day write in Philippians to live as Christ. Now that he's a Christian, he's 100% committed to Jesus Christ. And there's something very inspiring when we read this about Saul. There's something that I think moves our hearts to see someone who's living for Jesus in this way. Because here's the thing, when, when Saul becomes a Christian, his personality doesn't change. It's not like he's one way before a Christian, maybe he's an introvert, and then becomes an extrovert. Or it's not like, he's the same person with the same kind of one-track mind, very zealous, intense personality, but now he's using that personality in full service of Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer got at this a little bit when he wrote one time, to be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants him. This is the creature glorified. When we see Saul here, he's become a Christian and he's wholly committed to the Jesus who bought him with his blood. You know, Jesus is the one who created us. He's also the one who calls us which means the calling fits the creation. Jesus had been preparing Saul for this, and so when Saul became a Christian, he was the man that Jesus needed for the plans that he had for Saul. Saul just needed to be committed to Jesus with everything he had. But we need more than Saul's in the church. Saul was a very unique personality. We also need Barnabas's and Ananias's to be wholly committed to God in the place where God has them. And so I think the first thing we take from looking at Saul, the beginning of his ministries, are are you willing to be wholly committed to Jesus Christ where you are right now? In the church, we'll use the word consecrated, which means to be set apart. Are you willing to be set apart for Christ where he has you right now? It's not just pastors and missionaries who are consecrated. Students need to be consecrated. Attorneys, teachers, doctors, retirees, children, parents. Whatever your context is, whatever your life is, are you willing to be committed to Jesus, body and soul? This is who Saul is. He hasn't changed. 
but now all of himself is Jesus's, where Jesus wants him. But the second thing we see about Saul's ministry is that he preaches with spiritual power. So he's 100% for Christ. I mean, he was 100% against Christ. Now he's 100% for Christ. He's an all or nothing personality. And he preaches with spiritual power. Verse 22, it says, And Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And it says he increased in strength, right? Like Saul's not going to the gym. <laughs> That's not the kind of strength. He's increasing in spiritual power. And I think that's directly related to the fact that he's completely Christ's. He's dedicated, he's committed to Christ's body and soul, and that's where his spiritual power comes from. Spiritual power is not something that we talk about in Baptist circles, in my experience. Now, granted, I have a limited experience at the Southern Baptist Convention, which is primarily limited to Louisville. I'd never gone to a Southern Baptist church before I came to Louisville. I'm sorry if that upsets you. <laughs> I'm a Southern Baptist pastor now, okay? but I never heard any of my professors talk about spiritual power in seminary. Theological clarity, yes, that's good. Biblical exegesis, yes, that's good. Spiritual disciplines, yes, very important. But spiritual power, where does that come from? Why do the disciples preach and people listen and things happen? It's not because they were smarter than us or they were charismatic, it's because they had spiritual power. And where does that spiritual power come from? It comes from being wholly committed to God and the place that he has for you. Again, that is the creature glorified. And the reason why that leads to spiritual power is because Jesus told us in John 16, 14, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And so when we dedicate our lives to glorifying Jesus, whether that's, again, as a teacher or a student or what have you, or as a pastor, when we dedicate ourselves to glorifying Jesus with all that we have, we find ourselves running in the same lane as the Holy Spirit, so to speak. And he empowers us. Saul's dedicated to Jesus' body and soul. And I think as a result, his life has spiritual power that just can't be explained by his personal charisma or his personal abilities. But there's something else, there's a biographical note here I want to include that's not super clear, but it's just helpful to know about Paul because he becomes such a central figure in Acts. And it's how long he stays in Damascus. Luke is intentionally vague. In verse 23, he just says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Well, how long is that? Is that a week? Is that a month? Well, we've find out elsewhere that that was actually three years he spent in the Damascus area. And we find this out because Paul tells us in Galatians 1, 17 to 18, he gives his own biography, his own autobiography, where he says, I did not go up to Jerusalem. He's saying, yeah, I encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, and then I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went up into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15, year, 15 days. So what seems to have happened is Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes into Damascus, meets Ananias, becomes a Christian, begins to proclaim Jesus in Damascus for a brief time, and then he goes on this sojourn in Arabia. Now, Arabia is a desert that was all to the east, east of Israel, and Damascus would have been the, the, the northwest corner of that. So he didn't have to go far from Damascus to get into Arabia. 
He goes on this sojourn in Arabia, after three years comes back, that's when he gets all the people in Damascus upset at him and he leaves. What is he doing in Arabia during those three years? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. Some people think that was Paul's first missionary journey. I don't think that's particularly likely. I think probably what Paul was doing was that he was receiving from the Lord the gospel that he was going to proclaim. I think he was spending that time quiet before the Lord, still before the Lord. Because remember, Paul is very emphatic in Galatians that he did not receive his gospel from a human, but he received him from the Lord himself. And it kind of strains credibility to think that he could have received all of that in the road to Damascus. So I think Saul took three years to be still before the Lord and quiet before the Lord, to come to greater clarity on the gospel that he was gonna go out and proclaim. Now I've heard seminary described as a similar thing to this three-year sojourn in Arabia, and I think there's something to that. Um, you know, for those of you who are in Bible college or seminary because you feel called to ministry, and that's the goal is vocational ministry. You, you, you come to seminary, and especially as you move through your studies, it can begin to feel like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, like, it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Like, you're just studying, writing papers, and you go to seminary because you want to minister, you want to serve and lead and preach and disciple, and then all of a sudden you're, you're like reading books and writing papers, and maybe some of you enjoy that, but it can feel like a grind. And I just want to encourage you that there's great value in being still before the Lord for a season. There's great value in preparing your heart by being quiet before the Lord. But just make sure that as you're going through your studies, you're not just checking off boxes but that you're really being still before the Lord. What I did not realize when I was in seminary is that it would be far better to graduate with all C's and D's, be it having spent three years being still before the Lord, than to graduate with all A's, with all your professor's recommendations, and yet never having been still before the Lord. I didn't understand that when I was in seminary. Find time to be still before the Lord. And it's hard, I know. Seminary's busy. Bible college is busy. Just do your best. Jesus is sufficient. He really is. But I want to finish this first point by asking this question. Where is Jesus? Because again, this story is not about Paul, Saul. It's not about the Christians. This is about Jesus. The Bible is primarily about God and what God is doing. And when you come to that book of Acts, we could again title that book, The Acts of the Risen Jesus Christ, who is ascended into heaven, but now he's still at work through his church, through his spirit. So where do we see Jesus in this text? Well, again, if you remember from last week, Jesus had told Ananias that he had a plan for Paul. In verse 15 and 16, the Lord says to Ananias, go for this Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Jesus tells Ananias he's got two plans for Saul. One is that he's gonna be this chosen instrument to take the gospel to the nations, and the second plan is that, he's, that, this, that Saul's gonna suffer greatly in service to the Christ that he had been persecuting. And we see these plans coming to fruition already, because again, what Jesus plans really happens. Again, we see this Saul who came to Damascus to kill Christians, breathing murder and anger against Christ, all of a sudden converted and proclaiming this Jesus. 
and no one saw that coming. Makes no sense, because Jesus went after Saul, because what Jesus plans happens, because he's a sovereign Lord. With man, this would have been impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And so, brother, sister, if Jesus calls you to something, his plans will be fulfilled in your life. And there's a great comfort in that. Not because you have it within you, we are not sufficient, but because he's a sovereign Lord and what Jesus plans will happen. As Augustine wrote in the Confessions, which all of our men love, (laughs) Augustine wrote, Lord, give what you command and then command whatever you will. Jesus provides what we need to obey him. His plans will always happen. But second, again, so again, here's, here's Saul. No matter what his background was, he is, now, he is now becoming this instrument to take the gospel to the nations because that was Jesus' plan for him. But second, already Saul's beginning to suffer as Jesus' plans for him were. Three years in, he's already getting death threats. Praise God, I have not gotten a death threat yet that I know of. Maybe my deacons have been shielding me, I don't know. But Saul's already beginning a life of deep suffering that he'll continue for the rest of his life. So that's the first point. Jesus' plan for Saul in Damascus. What Jesus plans happens. Second point is Jesus' plan for Saul in Jerusalem. Let's uh, follow along as I read verses 26 to 30. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea. They sent him off to Tarsus. There's a problem that begins this section here, and it's this. Again, Jesus had said his plan for Saul is that he would be an instrument to take the gospel to the nations. But Saul arrives in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the center of Christianity. That's where the church is centered, and his reputation precedes him. They remember Saul. Remember, Saul's greatest persecution happened in Jerusalem. They remember Saul entering house after house, dragging off Christians to prison. And maybe they'd heard reports that Saul had become a Christian, but then Saul again had disappeared for three years. And now he shows up in Jerusalem, and he's like, hey, I'm a Christian. And so they are understandably hesitant to welcome Saul into the fellowship. And so we have a problem here. Saul, he's in limbo. He's rejected by the Jews because he's become a Christian, but he's not accepted by the Christians yet. And his mission to the Gentiles is gonna be hindered if he can't be in fellowship with where the church is centered, which is Jerusalem. And so the tension here is, again, is Jesus' plans for Saul going to be thwarted by Saul's own past, by the fears of Christians, the very understandable fears. What's gonna happen to Jesus' plans? But again, what Jesus' plans happens And so Jesus raises raises up a solution, which is Barnabas, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them 
how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, Jesus is sovereign. As we looked at last week, salvation is a matter of Jesus' sovereign grace. What he plans happens. Jesus had appointed Saul to be his ambassador to the nations, and nothing was going to stop that. Nothing. Saul's past was not going to prevent Jesus from fulfilling his plans for Saul. The fear of other Christians was not going to prevent Jesus from fulfilling his plans for Saul. Even persecution and opposition against the church was not going to prevent Jesus from fulfilling his plans for Saul. Jesus is sovereign in Acts. Again, we don't see his name, but his hands are everywhere. He is working and acting, and what he is planning, he's bringing about because he's sovereign. You know, we can, again, come to obstacles in our life, obstacles to what we feel like Jesus has called us to do, and they can seem insurmountable. And from a human perspective, they, they may be insurmountable. But, and so it's a comfort to remember that Jesus is sovereign. If Jesus wants something to happen, he'll make it happen. We have to be faithful, as we'll see, but Jesus will make it happen. It's so interesting, at the end of Saul's life, a man who lived a remarkable life of obedience and faithfulness. I mean, if anyone was faithful to the calling of his life, it was Saul, who could say at the end of his life, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight. And yet, the last book we have of Paul, 2 Timothy, what he says is if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Isn't that remarkable? At the end of this man's life, what he's impressed about is not his own faithfulness, but it's the faithfulness of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is sovereign. We see his sovereign grace. What Jesus plans happens. But at the same time, I don't want us to miss the element of human faithfulness that, again, Jesus uses people to bring about his plans. And so we get Barnabas. Just like Ananias, we looked at last week, He's not nearly as well known as Paul, but yet he was available to be used by Jesus. And so Jesus used him to be a link in that chain that would lead to Paul going to be the greatest missionary the church has ever ever seen. We're introduced to Barnabas actually in chapter four, and we find out there that his real name is Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname. Now you might think, Barnabas sounds nothing like Joseph. I know how nicknames work. What's going on? Well, Barnabas actually means son of encouragement. And the apostles nicknamed him that. And I'm guessing it's because he was an encourager. And uh, that's exactly what we see, the role he's playing here in chapter 9. It's Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who's willing to risk believing Saul, believing the best about him, who's able to see the spirit at work in him to see God's working in Saul. It's a sign of encouragement that can see that, that then brings him into the fellowship of the church and introduces him to Paul and Saul. Sorry, to Paul, also called Saul. Barnabas the encourager. May God raise up more Barnabases in our midst. 
if you're an encourager, uh, like Christianity today will never put you on their front cover because you encourage people. Won't happen. You'll never get invited to speak at conferences. Southern will never ask you to preach in their chapel because you encourage well. But don't underestimate how powerful encouragement is in the life of Christians. Again, if there had not been a Barnabas, would there have been a Paul? I don't know. I don't know if we can answer that. When I lived in D.C., I had a mentor who was an associate pastor at the church I was at, who was very formative for my life in that season. And he was an associate pastor, so he only preached a couple times. And I remember after one of the sermons he preached, he came up to me afterwards, like literally after the service. And he's, he's like, what would you think of this one part of the sermon? And to be honest, I had zoned out on that part. And I felt so bad, and he could tell. And I could tell he was hurt. I'll be honest, you know, the handful of sermons that he preached, I don't remember much of anything. But I do remember the couple of times he spoke words of encouragement into my life. I remember those words. May we be a church full of Barnabases. That would be heaven on earth, I think. Jesus uses the simple faithfulness of Barnabas to do great things. Again, Barnabas, he just reaches, I mean, Barnabas is not doing anything incredible. He's just, he's just willing to believe that Saul might be telling the truth. He's willing to see the best in someone else and to be available for what Jesus wants him to do. I mean, could Barnabas have known that Paul was gonna be one of the great church planners of the ages? He was gonna write part of the New Testament? No. He was just being faithful in what Jesus had called him to do. And Jesus, in the way that he works his kingdom, that's what he builds his kingdom on. Not impressive gestures or whatever, but it's on the simple faithfulness of Barnabas's and Ananias's that the gates of hell are overcome. Simple faithfulness in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to do. I I, I thought of this story um, a week or two ago. So about uh, six months after I became a Christian, I joined my church's Bible quiz team. Um, So I was in middle school, I was in eighth grade, just became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, but I became a Christian later. And um, and the way we studied first and second Corinthians, we'd go to quiz competitions where like, you know, there'd be teams and they'd ask questions about the book and the first one to raise your hand and get the question right and get points for your team. So you had to really study first and second Corinthians well. I'm 14, I'm your typical middle school boy. I'm just goofing off, screwing around. And it just occurred to me, like, the quiz team is read by a couple parents in the youth group who are volunteers, given other time to coordinate and coach this quiz team. It occurred to me, they probably thought they were wasting their time with me. Uh, I mean, I got kicked out of practice one day, I was being so disruptive. I I have this memory, like, (laughs) the coach, like, I'm, I'm just, in my defense, there's a lot of girls on the team, okay? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but the coach literally is like, you know, I'm, I'm goofing off, and he's like, Mike, Mike! And I'm like, not, not listening. He picks up his pencil and throws it at me. Not appropriate, I don't think. Educators, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. But he's just, I was just, I was just, I was just, I was just being a fortunate old boy, and they probably were so discouraged, like, we're giving our time, and this means nothing. But what they don't realize is so formative on me. Like, that's when I fell in love with the scriptures. And one of the ironies of Jesus Christ 
that the kid who got kicked out of Bible quiz practice would one day be called to preach these scriptures. So, beloved, you just, you be faithful. Where Christ has you, with what Christ has given you, how Christ has made you, you just be faithful. And because Jesus is sovereign, nothing done in his name will ever be in vain. That's our second point. Jesus' plan for Saul in Jerusalem. Our third and final point, Jesus' plan for the church at peace. Let me read verses 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied Luke gives these kind of regular summaries of the church when we're coming to an end of a section where he says the church was doing well, basically, and it was thriving. And we're bringing to an end this section on persecution that began in chapter eight, verse one, where Saul brings this great persecution against the church, and here it's, it's coming to a close, and the church has peace. But I wanna look at how did the church use their peace? How did they use it? All of a sudden, the persecution has, has ended because Saul is now a Christian. It seems like it's no longer an act of persecution. How do they use their peace? My kids love movies, Kung Fu Panda, one, two, and three. Um, and, in, and to be honest, I also love the movies. Like Jack Black's humor gets me. But um, they love the movies, and they're, they're based in China, so they're kind of like they have like a lot of pop Buddhist references. And so my kids, so they're always like talking about meditation and finding inner peace. And so my kids are walking around their house saying, inner peace, inner peace. But the characters are trying to like, like their goal when they have like time to themselves and peace is to like go and meditate in a cave for 30 years and find enlightenment, right? That's the pop Buddhist reference. And there's nothing wrong with like being, again, being still before the Lord. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm very likely planning another trip to the Abbey of Gethsemane in the fall for our men, um, which is a silent monastery. So there's, you know, being still before the Lord is good. But how does the church use their peace? They don't use it to go find enlightenment. But when persecution ends, they use it to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They use the peace and the freedom they have to walk closely with Jesus again, to be wholly committed to Jesus in the place where Jesus has them. So they're walking in the fear of the Lord because they serve a living Lord, a living God who is mighty and holy and powerful, who is not to be trifled with, but they're also walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit because the same Lord is the one who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest because he's a gentle Lord. And as they walk closely with this Jesus and the peace he's brought, they multiply. As Jesus said, you know, if you abide in me, if, if you're a branch that's attached to the vine, you're gonna bear fruit. It'll just happen just as an apple tree produces apples every spring they walk closely with Jesus. They use this peace to walk with him and, and as they do that, they, they produce fruit. But again, the, the point I wanna add on, end on here is that Jesus is sovereign, even over persecution. Again, Jesus' name is, is you know, not really anywhere in this story, 
and yet we see his work all over it. When the persecution begins in chapter eight, verse one, things do not look good for the church. This is a fledgling movement without institutions, without staying power. Things do not look good, and yet we find out that Jesus was the one in control the whole time. He's allowing and bringing that persecution so that the gospel go forth, and once that persecution has done what Jesus purposed for it to do, it ends, it's over. It does not go one inch further than Jesus planned it to go. And here's the thing, Saul, the great enemy of the church, the servant of Satan, to be honest, I love it. It's like Jesus is like dissing Satan. He's like, I'm just gonna pick your best man and make him my own because I feel like it. What are you gonna do about it, Satan? This Jesus is sovereign. What he plans to happen, happens. Beloved, this is someone you can trust with all your life. Someone you can trust with whatever is going on in your life. Nothing happens outside of his plan and his permission, and nothing is able to stop him from fulfilling his plan in your life, his desires for you, which are good, by the way. I mean, what's weighing on you this morning? Like, what, what burdens your heart and gives you anxiety? What has you down? Jesus reigns, and you can trust his work. And that means that he's working in every circumstance of your life. Every bit of your life, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the frustrating, the boring, he's working in it all to form you and refine you and make you into the man and woman that he wants you to be. And that is where the joy is. It's being Christ's in the place where he has us so we can trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, may we trust you with everything we have. Whatever we may bring this morning from this week, whatever may be our hopes and desires, our ambitions, our fears, Jesus, we lay them before you because you're sovereign and you're Lord. All that you say comes to be. We trust you. We know that you are at work in each of our lives, creating something beautiful and wonderful, and that one day we will worship you for all eternity because we will see how you used our small acts of faithfulness to do extraordinary things because you're that kind of God. Thank you that you use weak and frail people like me, like us. May all the glory be to you. Amen.